On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about something that many, many, many people who grew up in the 70s and 80s are familiar with and were affected by, and that would be Mad Magazine. Apparently closing its doors, shuttering its offices, there will be no more Mad Magazine. What does this mean and why was this such an important publication once upon a time? We'll be chatting about summer camp, whether summer camp is still a big deal in 2019, and we're talking about Joey Chestnut downing 71 hot dogs in 10 minutes while Ben on the podcast, tries to see if he can match that total. Hint, he can't. We're talking with a gastroenterologist about what eating 71 hot dogs does to your body. Let me give you another hint. Ugh. All that coming up. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There was an announcement today that came out. uh, It sort of trickled out and then it became a bit of a flood on social media, which seems to be just about perfect for the generation who would be affected by this. Uh, Mad Magazine announced today that it would be printing a few more editions and then, for all intents and purposes, shutting down. It's not going to be disappearing exactly. You're still going to be able to find it a little bit here and there. Uh, they say they're going to put out some new magazines with new, new covers on them, but all the content is just going to be previously used material they're going to recycle. There's not going to be any new content produced. So it's, as I say, for all intents and purposes, the end of Mad Magazine. I loved Mad Magazine as a kid. I don't know that it may have harmed me. It may have an awful lot to say about why I turned out the way I did. But it is an amazing thing today to see how many people also are sharing that. People of my generation, maybe yours listening again, if you grew up in the 70s, in the 80s, this was a staple for a lot of people. And I'm not exactly sure why it had the resonance that it did. Let me bring in Robert Thompson. He's a professor of television, radio, and film. He's also the director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. We love it when he joins us. He is today. Uh, Dr. Thompson, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm taking this news uh, pretty uh, pretty hard. Well, there has been lots of reaction. And, and listen, there's, there's lots and lots of magazines that have come and gone over the years. Why is this one spawning the reaction that it is? Well, part of it is it's been around for a long time. 67 years is a uh, means uh, several generations will have remembered uh, reading this. But also, when it was at its peak... It really was an important cultural presence uh, 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 here. And 1952, when it started, uh, is what, 20, 22 or 23 years before there was Saturday Night Live. Certainly before there was this, uh, 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 all these late-night uh, uh, comedies of political satire. Certainly before uh, the Internet and the Onion and all of these kinds of things. I remember as a kid, and I think I started reading this probably when I was about 10, so that would have been 1969 or so, and it very much helped to form my budding political consciousness. Hmm. It helped to form uh, uh, my uh, sense of humor, and uh, it was a very important thing to me. And uh, your parents let kids read it because I don't think they realized how subversive it was. <laughs> well, it, you, I think you hit on something, because I think for a lot of kids who would have never read politics or followed politics, or even a lot of the other areas of popular culture, or, or even just the broader culture of the day, this was their entree to that. This opened the doors to them for that. 
Yeah, and it, it really did, and we didn't have it. For example, television, of course, back uh, till we get into the 80s, television was essentially down here, the three networks and maybe an independent station. And uh, the closest thing we had to political satire was was the Tonight Show, Johnny Carson. Uh, he doesn't start that till 10 years after Mad uh, uh, debuted uh, either. And while Johnny Carson used to tell jokes about politics. He was by no means a political humorist. Uh, the other thing I remember about Mad Magazine, uh, when I was a kid, of course, I couldn't see R-rated movies. They would do parodies of mm. R-rated movies, so I'd at least get a sense of what they were about. You mentioned things like Saturday Night Live. I- is this properly in that same conversation? I think so. Uh, well, uh, yes. I mean, Saturday Night Live will uh, uh, will parody television shows. It will parody uh, uh, movies, uh, political uh, uh, things that are going on. And then Mad Magazine did all of that uh, uh, as well. So I, I think they are in similar categories. Obviously, one is a television show and one was a, uh, a magazine, and there were different limits that you can do there. Uh, but we should remember, uh, Mad became a television right. show, not once but twice. Mad TV that ran for uh, 14 seasons uh, and that gave a start to Jordan Peele, who's been doing pretty well since then. Uh, and then uh, I think it was Cartoon Network did another spinoff of it as well. You mentioned that uh, parents let their kids read this, and I think it's probably because it was wrapped in a beautiful comic book looking rapper rapper i think if a lot of parents had opened this up they may have had a, di- a different view of whether their kids should be reading this back then yeah, no i think my parents might have although there were a lot of uh i mean obviously there was all the politics stuff but there were also other things um for the most part they tended to by no means uh, uh they were anti-drug they were very anti-tobacco i remember a lot of uh features in it uh that dealt with that the little fold-ins and all that kind of thing um, uh, but I, I think it, 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 it was a sense, though, that there, there was so little out there that, uh, of this kind of thing that MAD provided, and there is now so much out there providing a similar kind of thing. You know, the, the moment we should have maybe seen this coming, back in May, when uh, the President of the United States called, uh, I think it was Pete Buttigieg, he compared him to Alfred E. Newman, the, mm. you know, the cover of every MAD magazine. And uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg, running for president, said, I didn't know what that meant. I had to Google it. I suppose when we hear a presidential candidate saying that they have to Google the new generation, Alfred E. Newman, Newman, the old generation, we should have figured the end was near, and it was sooner than we would would have thought. Uh, Robert, who was the audience for Mad Magazine at its peak? Well, its peak was probably... I think it got it, it broke over a million, or I'm sorry, over two million in the early 1970s, and I think that was really at, at its. It of course started in 1952, but I think that's when its circulation was uh, the highest. By the way, its circulation uh, uh, more recently, 2017, 18, was more like 150,000. And who were those people? Who were those two million people right. who were buying? Uh, I think a, a, a lot of them were uh, uh, people from the age of about ten, which is when Mad Magazine, I think, really began to speak to burgeoning young uh, consciousnesses. Uh, I think a lot of teenagers, but then also people who had started reading it earlier than that. Uh, many continued for uh, uh, you know well into their adulthood.
It seemed... I know my own personal experience. I, I read it uh, religiously from about the age of 10 to about the age of 18. Um, but then again, by the time I uh, reached 18, all these other things began to emerge, like Saturday Night Live and all that, uh, uh, that I guess maybe took the place of Mad for me. But it seems, based on the response today, that when I when we're talking about the audience, there are so many people that are in comedy, in television, in drawing cartoons, comics, uh, in satire, TV, film, all that kind of world seems to be speaking to this. There's an awful lot of people who went into those lines of work who were a Affected by this? Oh, that's true. I think an awful lot of people in uh, comedy, especially uh, older people in comedy, uh, point to Mad Magazine as a major uh, influence. Even way back, Ernie Kovacs, and the, unless you're of a certain age, uh, uh, people not recognize that name, but one of the geniuses of American television. He died uh, uh, very young in an auto accident, but uh, uh, he. Uh, before he went into television, before he went into radio first, uh, had worked for Mad Magazine as well. So it, it was, a, uh, I think, very influential for an awful lot of people. That was probably less true in the last several years than it had been at its peak. The, you mentioned a while ago about the, having to Google it and for you know, a new generation to see who Alfred E. Newman was, but I, I, I guess the inevitability, as you point to it, there is an inevitability to these things, but I'm also wondering if it's because a lot of, if you go back and pull some of those old ones out, there is a brand of humor in there that maybe is not fitting with today's modern sensibilities. I don't know that it could have survived the way it was. It was pretty edgy. It was edgy, but it also, unlike network television back there, it, back then, it didn't have to appeal to everybody. Uh, there were plenty of people uh, uh, back in the day that did not like what Mad Magazine uh, was doing, and they didn't read Mad Magazine. Magazines were actually able to, and that's, maybe that's another reason why it was doing what it was doing before TV, TV did. Uh, television had to not offend anybody. They wanted to maximize the audience by getting uh, everybody to be watching. Magazines were able to be much more uh, niche. In many, in many ways, magazines back then were able to do what uh, uh, what streaming services do do now? Mad, uh, Mad Magazine was at its peak at uh, uh, two million plus um, uh, circulation uh, back then in the in that same era in the 1970s. Uh, a, a television show would have gotten canceled with 20 million, mm. ten times that. You used a fantastic word because I think it's perfect, which was subversive. If again, if it was at its peak today, if it was still rolling along as it was, would it? Do you think that many of the people who were being lampooned by Mad would see it as a compliment in a weird kind of backhanded way, or would they be trying to shut it down now, or trying to get their name out of there because of the way it skewered people? Well, it, it would depend on the person, I guess. I mean, we and, and we can see how that dynamic works now in uh, watching how people respond who get skewered in, you know, by Colbert or by uh, uh, by Saturday Night Live, which we keep bringing up. Uh, I mean, some of the people who got skewered by Saturday Night Live would show up on Saturday mm. Night Live. Sarah Palin is a perfect example. Uh, she was uh, annihilated on that show, yet she still came and, uh, uh, you know, tried to, you know, 
act like she was uh, uh, able to play along with the joke. So I think that would be the case with um, uh, with Mad Magazine as well. Of course, it is. It's it's still going as of right now. So they've done they've done their Trump covers and all of that uh, kind of thing. Uh, people don't talk about. I mean, I guess one of the things is that now that this announcement has been made. Everybody's coming out of the woodwork talking about how wonderful Mad Magazine is. Uh, on the other hand, a week ago, before this announcement had been made, people haven't been talking much about Mad Magazine until that Alfred E. Newman comment back in May. Yeah, I really wish that my huge collection of Mad Magazines, either I or my mom, I'm not sure which, had not thrown out. <laughs> but I, I they are long know, gone. I discovered it through those those books. They would uh, mm. reprint in you know small paperback uh, yes. uh, books. They'd reprint previous issues. I must have had a library of a couple of dozen of those things. Robert Thompson from the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing it today. That was fun. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, around this time, we were chatting about summer camp. Ben and I were chatting about experiences at summer camp. It is one of those things, last segment we're talking about Mad Magazine. Boy, talk about a throwback to your youth. Well, you start mentioning summer camp. And so many people, same thing. Either you loved it, which I think most people probably fall into that category, or the few people who weren't as fond of summer camp, there's probably a few of those, but I think more people than not have very fond memories. If they went to camp, other than, as I said yesterday, other than the 7 a.m. forced dips into the freezing cold lake, I still hold a grudge over that one. We could have dipped at noon when it was warm, I'm saying. We didn't have to get in that early in the morning. Anyway, uh, but summer camp, it's July. It is time. Kids are now rolling back up north or back wherever. Camp is back in session all over the place. Want to bring in Steve Van Winden, who is the executive director of Sports Discovery Camp. Uh, he joins us now. Steve, how are you today? Very good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate this because this is, as I say, one of those topics that for most people, they hear summer camp and, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a warm, fuzzy feeling for most people. It certainly is, and some have such great memories of the different types of experiences they have, that's for sure. And as we were talking about yesterday, where else legally can you participate in archery? So there you go. That's that's right. Uh, Why, though, do... Okay, it's 2019. The world is changing. We all know that. We've got lots of different things to do. Why do we still need summer camp? Well, I think uh, the socialization and interaction with other children is such an important thing, and especially with how technology has become so pervasive, I think that Getting kids away from their their devices is so important. Getting them active, not only uh, physically but mentally, and and how they relate to others. Is when they do show up for camp. This is a silly or strange question, perhaps to ask, but do they know how to do camp? Um, it depends on, I guess, past experiences uh, when the campers show up and and what they've done before, and you know, trying to especially after the uh, when they first show up the first day, not sure what to expect, but. We try to make a real comfortable uh, atmosphere for them and, and that they can have start having fun right away. But when I say do they know how to do camp, and, and for sure, I mean, obviously, if they've not been there before, they won't know how to do that. But I'm talking more about what you said a moment ago, where they are now so used to doing their socializing through their devices almost. Do they know how to socialize and be involved with other people without those electronics involved? I... It could be a challenge maybe for some more than others. It, uh, I mean, so many of them are going to school. They have so many other socialization areas that they're doing, but 
they can be so so structured and they learn different things in, in different ways. So we what we're trying to do at our camp is is uh, I guess learn some of those skills that they, uh, of what they need to do to, to be the, uh, you know good citizens and good people and learn how to get along and teamwork and help others those sorts of things. Did Did you go to camp as a kid? Actually, no, I did not. You didn't. Okay. No. So I, I, I grew up on a farm, so I guess that was a that was camp full camp year round. Because uh, I did, I went to a variety of different camps, sports camps, and other camps as well, overnight camps, and up north camps, and all those kind of things. And there are parts of it that really I remember very, 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 very vividly. And I talked to a few people about this over the past couple of days, and everyone I talked to who did go has that same thing, that there are parts of camp, even if it's 40, 50 years ago, they remember very vividly. Why do you think that it holds that place, that it's able to do that? I'm not, I, I guess partly when you think it's summertime, at least they're away from school, and it's a chance maybe to meet new friends and have probably experiences that they just don't normally have day-to-day. It's that one unique time that they're doing something that they just haven't done before. So and uh, and hopefully for so many people, there's such great experiences while they have it that just they just become great memories. It, clearly, it does because if you think of the number of movies, the number of TV shows, the number of references to summer camp, I mean, clearly it's it's done something to resonate with an awful lot of people. Well, that's for sure. And there's so many. I mean, when I think back and how many different you know uh, movies that, that are around camp themes that uh, and and I think too especially even as adults who've gone to camp, they can so relate to some of the things that appear in the movie that they can either, you know, cherish or that they can laugh along with. Yeah, there's just so many neat experiences that they can have. Yeah, they're often, uh, uh, there's one movie that comes to mind, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a, it's a look back, it's like a, it's called Indian Summer, and it was, it's actually filmed in northern Ontario at a camp up north in Ontario. Uh, and it's adults going back to their childhood camp, and you sort of, that's exactly the kind of thing that, Whoever they have these fond memories. I, the other side, of course, is the other. The other half of camp movies are always horror movies, where half the people who have ever been slaughtered in horror movies was always at camp. But anyway, we won't get into that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, but isn't it okay? So for kids, though, is it how is it not much like school still, even though it's not in school? Um, obviously, there's. I guess there would be elements of, but we also try to make it that. Um, maybe they have uh, at least one thing we're trying to do with sports discovery camp is let them do things that uh, they they have some say in what they do. So they have choice as opposed to a you know, school being so structured that you've uh, you know especially you know if you you pick your courses even a, late, a little later in, in your school career and then you're taking them. Well, this is each day you've got choices of different sports that of course you can't do your your sport every time. You have to learn to share, which is part of what our camp does, but. The, uh, we have a, a, a part of it that's a structured part just to give them, uh, run them through some skills that we call them, they're kind of like people building skills and they may not realize it's part of it, but they are uh, definitely, um, you know, it, it's going to be enjoyable. It gets them going. But then they also get to realize that there are other types of games that maybe they've never even played. Uh, Steve, yours is, it's called Sports Discovery Camp. What does that mean? So it's, it's essentially, um, I guess there's to me two aspects. One is, um, letting kids play sports for the enjoyment of sports. Um, there's so many, so much, so many structured points where sports, where kids are, and uh, the whole focus is on winning. Uh, we want them to learn that. I mean, winning is a part of sports because winning and losing is part of life. But we also want them to find enjoyment. That it's not all about the best player, but also the. Uh, we also want them to experience some things that they wouldn't have necessarily come across before. 
um, with some sports that they've never seen. And there, there's a lot of them are sports that you can play in your backyard. Um, so no, we, we, we'd like to give them a, a, you know, a, a, quite a choice of different things that they can, can try out. Uh, it's. I understand that it's based off another camp that was done, the, the idea of it, a STEM camp. Now, we know what STEM is, which is the engineering and science and technology, and I can't remember what the M is, math? Uh, mathematics. Okay, there you go. I figured. Uh, yeah, the one thing I don't know is the one that I wouldn't get. <laughs> um, and, and there was a STEM camp that was did the same kind of thing with those things, correct, first? Yes. That's actually what it, where our history is, because uh, our founder, Kevin Kugler, about six years ago, he started up a STEM camp. Uh, because he wanted his son to be able to explore, uh, find a camp and explore new things around him. And he couldn't, he didn't really see one out there. So he decided to start one of his own. And it's come from uh, a camp of, I think there were two locations with maybe 150 kids six years ago, where this year we have over four, almost 50 locations with, um, I think we're looking at eight to 9,000 kids will be part of it. Wow. Uh, across, uh, across all of uh, South and Central Ontario. So, um, but yeah, they, we see the, the kids that come, the campers, we like to call them campers, they come to our camp and, and tr- just see the other different things that they could be exposed to that just make them, uh, them better people. And uh, one thing I, I also like to see is um, at every camp, you always have counselors too, because when you think back in memories, I, um, I was involved with an arts camp previously, and our, our counselors, they have some of the greatest memories working at camp. Well, this year we're hiring almost 300 uh, university students to work at our camps and there are sometimes with the, the the students we come across we think we we like to see some skills that we aren't quite seeing there and if we could expose them to some of the team building and communication type skills at possibly a younger age then those are the kind of people that uh that i think as, as a society we need to have to be our future leaders so but at the same time getting an interest in sports keeping them active and even trying to if they have the enjoyment, they would then keep active through their whole life, and uh, which is so important as well. One of the things that strikes me about this is that you're talking, okay, we've got a STEM camp, we've got, you mentioned arts camp, here you've got Discovery Sports Camp, or Sports Discovery Camp. Um, mm-hmm. There seem It seems to be the new or newer thing that once upon a time when you would go and just go to camp and you did everything, that it's a little more targeted now towards your interest or towards the kid's interest. And that's correct because, uh, and I guess there's two sides, you know, as parents when they're trying to choose what camps to go to, they you know, try and find camps that the kids might be interested or at the same time, you know, the, if are there camps that the, the parents think that would be really unique. It's a different experience than just a general camp uh, because uh, they, um, they're away from school. So is there something that we can keep doing to keep their, their mind fresh and, and so that when they come back to school in the fall, they, they, they don't have to get up to speed. And, and the kids may not even know that it's happening. So, it, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of specialization out there. And, and we just think this is a, a part of the, the camp, uh, this atmosphere that is out there that we think we can make a difference and, and make a really enjoyable time for our kids. And they, they learn at the same time. Well, and you better because there are so many other things competing for kids' attention at this point that if you're not finding something that interests them, you're going to lose them pretty quickly. Oh, that's right. So, and actually it's one of the, in the research we've done behind sports, uh, we find that a lot of kids between around 10 and 12, uh, they've been playing structured sports, but they tend to lose interest. And part of the reason is the competitive nature, they, either the environment is not an enjoyable one or they feel that they don't quite measure up. But we want to show them that, no, you can still enjoy sports for the enjoyment. 
and try and keep that interest in sports even uh, as they age because it's so important to uh, to be to keep active. We all know that, and uh, and with all these devices that people have, it, it can make it pretty easy for kids to sit still and not do much. So we're trying to do anything we can to to keep them active. Uh, so you do have kids that want to just stay home and sit on the couch and play on their devices. And I guess that's totally fine. Now they're out of school. They get to choose. Are mm-hmm. you, are you trying to sell camp to the kids or are you trying to sell camp to the parents? Um, I would, I'd like to say both, but I know that the parents have a big say in what, in what goes on. And they do have so many choices out there that, um, I guess we, we just want to make sure, uh, to make sure that, they, they're in an environment where the kids will have fun and learn at the same time. Um, so, but uh, yeah, we also need to make sure that the kids, when they when they hear about it, they they want to uh, definitely show an interest that they they really want to come to our camp. The uh, the camp is called Sports Discovery Camp. His name is Steve Van Winden. Steve, really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Thanks so much. Well, thanks thanks so much for having us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have a special guest in the studio. Usually he is on the other side of the glass doing what Donna is doing, but we brought him in special today for a variety of reasons. Uh, namely, number one on the list, he is a guy who can apparently, I'm told, eat far better than previous people we have had eat on the show. Let me back up for a second. By the way, it's Ben who you would hear week after week, here day after day. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So it's July 4th. Every July 4th, on Coney Island, they have the Nathan's Old Fashioned Hot Dog Eating Competition. And Joey Chestnut today ate 71 hot dogs and buns, which is thoroughly grotesque. But every year for about the past three or four, I have thought, let's see how well we can do at matching Joey Chestnut's number. And so I've had different people take on the challenge who work here. Luke Vermeer did it. Now, Luke used to work here and used to be on the air doing what you do. And... Luke is a big guy. He's about six foot six, and he's not a skinny little man. He's he's a he's a big person. He's a guy who can put it away. Well, you would think. Yet Luke was what I would generously describe as a colossal failure. <laughs> Luke was absolutely horrendous. I believe the first year he tried it, he ate three hot dogs that's in it? ten minutes. Yeah, that's what I said. There are feral cats that would eat three hot dogs in 10 minutes. Three hot dogs in 10 minutes for someone who is 80 pounds, maybe. Luke is not 80 pounds. I was so, so I gave him a chance to come back and redeem himself. Redeem himself. And I think he got four. Come on. He didn't do any better. It was, it was the most disappointing thing to see how Luke struggled with just a part of life that you would expect to be, that he'd be good at, which was eating. Anyone would be good at it. So we got rid of Luke. We said, enough of you. You are a catastrophic failure in the competitive eating world. You're great at other things, but eating you suck. So we gave Will a chance last year. Will also does your job some of the time. People hear him on here. They now hear him with Scott Thompson. Will was a was better, but only marginally better. Will was really, I think he had six, maybe six and a half. Like Will... And Will can put it away too. And I thought, no, no, it was it was kind of sad. So we've decided to go to the cleanup hitter. The one guy that I'm holding out all my hope in, who in this building 
I would think would have the greatest opportunity, the greatest chance of being able to do some damage to our hot dog stack. Now we have a stack of hot dogs sitting in front of you. We have a, a and there's two dozen there. Now we, I thought, you know what? Okay, you're not going to take on Joey Chestnut. You're just not. There's nobody else in the world that takes on Joey Chestnut. I appreciate the vote of confidence. Yeah. Thank well, you. no, that's look. There's nobody. There were guys walking up on the stage to compete with him today, and they didn't have a hope. So. But we've got two dozen hot dogs in front of you. You've got 10 minutes. All you got to do is down as many as you can. You're going to keep track. I'm going to start the clock. And we are going to, while I'm talking, because we've got a guest coming on here to talk about what Joey Chestnut did today and what that means, um, we are going to let you go. So, Ben, on three, you're going to keep track of your own hot dogs. I'm ready. You have 10 minutes to down as many as you can. Three, two, one. Oh, I got to say what they say on the uh, the normal thing, the the usual one. Gentlemen, start your enzymes. <laughs> In three, two, one, begin eating. And while we do that, let me bring in someone who knows his way around the digestive system. He is the chief gastro, chief of gastroenterology at McMaster University. His name is Dr. John Marshall. Dr. Marshall, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Uh, this is especially good because while Ben is sitting here downing hoof missiles, which is what we call them, the uh, leftover pig residue wrapped up into a tube, uh, you can tell us all the horrible things that people who put 71 hot dogs in their body are doing to themselves. <laughs> well, you'd think it, it can't be a good thing for the human body, but I, I congratulate your guests on this <laughs> accomplishment. Uh, what is, so he did, uh, this guy, Joey Chestnut, who won this thing last year, did 74. He didn't quite catch up to his mark, but what is, what does putting that much of any kind of food, let alone something filled with this much sodium and fat and everything else, to put that much of anything in your body, what does it do? Well, I, I think it can do a variety of things, although in fairness, People who do this professionally, I think, train for it and probably aren't prone to the same risks as you and I might be if we tried to do it. But to put uh, a large amount of food suddenly into the stomach uh, causes some obvious mechanical problems. Our, your stomach is a stretchy uh, organ. It can expand and contract. But if you overdo it, uh, clearly there's always the risk of, of tearing the stomach. We call that a gastric uh, perforation you could actually just, you could tear your stomach just by eating enough? Uh, sure. If, if you were able to, to, to get over the sort of natural uh, aversion to swallowing food when you're already full, if you can force more in, yes, it's possible to, to tear the stomach. Now, okay, so how much food, though, for the average person? And again, and we're talking, there's always going to be exceptions, but for the average person, how big is a stomach? Like how much in volume could you actually put in before you started risking something? Remember, it's a stretchy uh, organ, so I think the average person could easily put in a few liters, for example, of fluid. They'd feel very full, that they wouldn't be at risk of, of an actual tear or perforation. We're talking about pushing beyond that, and particularly with solid food that also carries the weight with it. You put that much weight in the stomach, uh, it can droop and it can start to compress other organs. It can also uh, potentially uh, you know, twist the exit from the stomach and cause a, a blockage. Would not, for the average person who starts to eat and starts to fill up their stomach, though, would the gag reflex not be kicking in so much that they couldn't force it down? Oh, the human body is full of all kinds of of tools that stop us from, uh, in theory, overeating. And it's not just the physical aspects of this, where as food starts to perhaps back up into the bottom end of the food pipe or the esophagus, you know, you start to... uh, uh, 
uh, feel the urge to, to bring it up. But also there are many hormone signals that happen when the stomach is stretched and full that send signals back to you to tell you that you're full and you should stop eating. So there are mechanical issues that stop you from overeating, and there are also hormone signals that kick in when the stomach's full to prevent people from doing this. So Ben, who's sitting next to me, is not going to get to 71 hot dogs I trust. We don't have 71 in front of him, so I'm, not, I'm banking on him not quite getting there. But for Joey Chestnut today, down at this thing in the States, he put 71 hot dogs into it. One of the things that in my little rudimentary understanding about the digestive system is that your chewing and your saliva are part of the digestive process. He's hardly chewing and there's certainly not much saliva that could possibly be produced enough to be involved in every single hot dog. So what, what's happening when that gets into his stomach? Well, the stomach does secrete a, a lot of fluid and juice. I think the idea of uh, saliva is two things. One is it starts a bit of the digestion because there are actually enzymes in saliva that help to break, start breaking things down. But moreover, it's a lubricant that allows food to travel more easily through the esophagus, that food pipe, uh, and into the stomach. So a large part of the, the, uh, the water is uh, the saliva is actually lubrication. So when you put that much food into you at once, though, is your body going to digest it? Uh, it, it can, but, you know, you can certainly overdo things. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure how carefully your guest is chewing his hot dogs. I suspect it's hard to do so with uh, the pressure that's upon him. But you end up with, you know, large large pieces, large chunks. And, yes, your body will slowly uh, eat away at that. But, you know, you could think over time that if you keep doing this, you keep stretching the stomach, it, it loses a bit of its ability to squeeze and to move things through. You can actually potentially accumulate food that will sit there for longer and have trouble passing into the rest of the intestine because the stomach gets a little flaccid and loses its uh, ability to squeeze and push things through. So those big pieces could potentially uh, sit there. The the amount, when you start looking at some of the stuff that was in it too, because it's a roughly 22,000, what's the 22,000 calories roughly is what he ate today, which is what compared to what the average human needs on a daily basis? Well, that's well over 10 times the, oh. the need. All right. So he's, he, he, he overdid it a little. Um, and then, so the, the numbers are roughly 1,300 grams of fat, 2,600 grams of cholesterol, 54,000 grams of sodium. Is there a point at which your body just expels it all without that being a problem? Or when you put that much of those things into you, is it always going to be a problem? Well, I think if you do it repeatedly, there are certainly things that can that can happen. You know, sodium is not good for us in high quantities. It contributes to high blood pressure, uh, fluid retention. Uh, you know, we can handle it if we do it as a one-off event. But if this is a recurring thing, then all those heart problems that arise from high sodium levels mm. and high, can, can accrue. Uh, but also, you know, eating that many carbohydrates, you know, that triggers all sorts of things, including a surge of insulin production to help digest it. And if you keep doing that with these big surges of carbohydrates, in theory, that can increase your future risk of diabetes. Because I, I've heard, and I don't know if this is true, but if you overdo it, let's say you take a bunch of vitamin C that you, you believe that vitamin C is going to help you fight a cold or whatever, and you overdo it, I've always been told, well, whatever's extra, you just sort of pee out. Would it be the same with the sodium and everything else that for this one time, your body's not just going to ingest all this, you're just going to expel it somehow so it's not a big problem? I think you're right. The human body is a pretty amazing thing, and it's quite adaptable. It's, 
it manages to restore its balance or what we call homeostasis fairly quickly. So yes, it can it can bounce back from that sort of overindulgence. Uh, but again, it's the repeated uh, incidences of this that start to uh, uh, build up problems that can lead to long-term health concerns. There is, um, there was a guy who used to go to McMaster uh, who has become a competitive eater. He's all over YouTube. He's a big, his name is Furious Pete, Pete Cherwinski. Uh, and I've talked to him before and he says, and I'm not surprised, he goes, the number one question that everybody always asks, any guess what you think he may be getting asked as his number one question as a competitive eater? <laughs> How he keeps his weight down, I would think. Well, that's part of it. He's a bodybuilder, so he works out a lot. That's part of it. But the number one question involves what happens the next day, (laughs) Um, which I guess is not all that surprising. Um, Without being too graphic, Ben is here trying to eat food. (laughs) Uh, What If you start stuffing 71 hot dogs into you, what does happen the next day? Ben can probably tell you his personal experience, but <laughs> he will tomorrow. <laughs> what goes in must come out, and so you know, volume in will equal volume out. So yes, you might have a busy day the next day. It can it can take a day or two for things to fully pass. But uh, not to be too uh, delicate about this, but when you're not really chewing, when you're swallowing in giant chunks, would you expect it to come out in giant chunks then, or does your body break it down more than that along the way? Well, I think your body would do a pretty good job at digesting most things, uh, including uh, whatever is in hot dogs. Uh, but yes, absolutely, it's not perfect. And you, know, if you really wanted to uh, do a close examination, I'm sure you'd see uh, some uh, pieces intact coming through you. But it depends on the nature of what you eat. Everyone knows about corn. Uh, it comes through you relatively undigested. And that's true of a lot of uh, plant-based pro- uh, complex carbohydrates. Uh, that that also come through relatively undigested. Um, hot dogs, I think, what's in them is fairly ground. It's it's uh, it's not uh, in its natural state and doesn't contain a lot of complex carbohydrates. I, I'll bet your body does a pretty good job of breaking it down. Last thing, we got to let you go. But if somebody was to come to you and say, "Look, I, I'm I'm thinking of doing something like this, and I I, I may actually have a talent for it." Uh, <laughs> Would you, and they said, I'm going to do this once. Would you say, no, 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 don't do it at all because it's going to damage you? Or would you say, look, if you're going to do it once, you're probably going to be okay? Well, I th- again, I, I can't claim to know a lot about this uh, sport, but I would say don't just do it once. If you're going to do something like this, I think you've got to be very careful to think about it and, and train. I am aware that these people do a lot of training that really revolves around stretching the stomach so that you're not at risk of those short-term complications like like a tear. So if you're thinking about doing it once, it's maybe one event, but but do some reading and do some training. And uh, I guess good luck. Dr. John Marshall, Chief of Gastroenterology at McMaster, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, there you go. So if you're going to do it, train. Eat like, a, I don't know that he was suggesting you should eat like a pig all the time, but do something. Uh, ben has three seconds, two seconds, one second. He got his last hot dog down just in the nick of time. We'll let him swallow. And then um, I think looking at the platter, Ben has exceeded by far what Luke was able to pathetically do for two straight years and was able to beat Will last year. And oh, by the way, we offered the opportunity to Donna to participate. Donna wisely said, no, Ben's got it. <laughs> Ben's, Ben's good. I'll take a pass. So what'd you get to? I am at seven. 
Seven, well, seven's not bad. Or, so I you, guess I just finished eight. So. You finished eight. So, okay, so eight. you beat Will. You definitely beat Luke. So, uh, Joey Chestnut, I'm coming for you next. But can you imagine, though, <laughs> you finished seven and you were you were mowing at it. Like, you were going hard at it for ten full minutes. That was one hot dog every, like, minute and 15 seconds, let's yeah. say, 20 seconds. He was going eight seconds a dog. See, the thing is, it's the bread that always gets you. I've done other things kind of like this, and it's always the bread. The bread is the worst part. That, and I also have a mustache, and I was eating that half of the other time. So, <laughs> yeah. If you're going to do it, don't have a mustache, I learned. But I'm thinking if you take the bread off and you just do like he does, and you hold two do- two wieners at the same time and shove them in by themselves, I know what would happen. I would end up being the guy who needs the Heimlich maneuver. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to need a bit more than a Heimlich. <laughs> this studio stinks right now, and not just because of your belch. I cannot fathom, and I, I saw a bit of it today on TV. You went through seven, and you were working hard at it, and you were going, well, I cannot imagine eating 10 times that many hot dogs. 10 times that many hot dogs, plus one. It's got to hurt. Almost. You did eight. So nine times, let's say. Hurt? Yeah. Yeah. It's I, the bread, as I say. <laughs> so, like, if, if it was just the straight dog, oh, yeah, I could swallow that whole, but... Did you think about, by the way, what you were eating when you were doing it? You were eating basically hoof and snout meat along with some white bread. Tastes pretty good. <laughs> well, thank you for trying. Thank you Thanks for, for doing that. Me. So now, I have no idea where we go next year for this. I don't know who is more of a likely contender than you. Cause you, need, you need to have a head-to-head. I'll take on anyone. Well, we we got to find somebody who, surely if 71 is the mark for this year, there's got to be someone who can eclipse the double, get into double digits. I was close. I If I train for a year, I think oh, I could- Oh, don't, pro- don't, don't bother training for a year. This is not no? nearly that big a deal. <laughs> I, I would hate to think that you would spend a year for this and you know what will happen next year, I'll forget. And you won't go, <laughs> what did I do? Hey, so you're going to have me on? Uh, oh, right. You yeah. were doing that whole year long channel. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for coming in. Thank you for trying. This was fun. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.